Well, we've officially been hamster owners for about three weeks at our home. And in that three-week period, I believe we've changed or cleaned out the cage, I think, four times. Who do you think has cleaned out the cage all four times? What? Wow, the level of trust in this place. I believe I've been thoroughly involved in each cleaning. Do you know who has not been involved, really, that much at all? The official owner of the hamster. It was about three weeks ago that we walked into that hamster store, and we had a complete agreement before we went into that hamster store. You get a hamster, you take care of the hamster. Water, food, and cleaning the cage. None of that has happened at all. I think some of you would say, well, I've got a pretty good reason for that. You're delusional. <laughs> Most of you probably would have told me that in advance, thinking they're actually going to participate. You're delusional. You're probably thinking to yourself, get ready. You've probably got another four months or however long that thing's going to live for of cage cleaning <laughs> left in your life. I think it's pretty much agreeable that when we went into that pet store, I was delusional. Well, this morning, you and I would be delusional if we said to one another that we're never going to have conflict with each other again. We would be delusional if I said, I'm never going to wrong someone or someone's never going to wrong me. We can actually all say from experience that someone has wronged us and we have wronged them. We know we're going to have relational conflict. We know that we're going to be hurt by things done or left undone. We also know that we're going to hurt other people. This morning, we come into this teaching from Jesus, a decently hard teaching, some would say, of where Jesus tries to help us navigate these waters of relational conflict. As he helps navigate these waters, he lays out for us a different pathway that we're not used to. He weighs out, lays out for us a pathway that reflects his character rather than the character of the world. And as we hear Jesus' teaching this morning, some of us are tempted to take a step back and say, well, hold on a second. Jesus actually isn't expecting this stuff from us. Jesus is just laying out for us the high ideals of the moral life. That's how some read this passage of Scripture. They see this as just God laying down his law, and the purpose of God laying down his law is to break our backs is to force us into saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. Well, how many of you as parents, when you're helping your children count, give them a number that you know they absolutely cannot count to? So you say to them, count to 133, and you just know, <laughs> they can only get to nine. You don't do that. You don't lay out a number for them so that when they get to nine, they leave feeling all bad for themselves and come back saying, I need your help, master father and master mother. God's not laying out for us these high ideals that are supposed to make us feel guilty, these high ideals that are just kind of things that only happen in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is laying out the heart of his father. Jesus is laying out for us the ways of the kingdom of God. It says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, if you still have your Bibles open, Jesus says to his followers right before this teaching, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be restored? And then he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
So Jesus just said to his followers, hey, you're the salt of the world, you're the light of the world. Do you think he would say that? And then he would say, hey, now I'm going to give you some commands that you can't really follow. So you can't really be the salt of the earth. You can't really be a light on a hill. No, he just said, hey, this is who you are. You're the people of God, and this is how you're going to now, this is how you're going to let your light shine. Now, when God's law comes to us, it causes us to recognize that we have fallen short. It breaks us and says, wow, I need Jesus. Well, at the exact same time, God's law reflects to us the heart of God, of how he desires his people to act and to interact. So why does Jesus come out so harsh in this passage of Scripture? Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said that murder is wrong, and everybody's in agreement. Yep, murder is a bad thing. But then Jesus says, now, this is what you've heard, but this is actually the way it is. It's not just murder that's bad, it's anger that's bad. It's saying in your own heart, you're a fool. That's just as bad as murder. Well, what's causing God, Jesus to come down so harshly on this inside stuff in our lives? Hatred and malice and bitterness. There's three reasons that Jesus is saying, hey, this is a problem. And the reason that Jesus is saying it's a problem is that it's dishonoring to God when we have anger in our hearts. It's dishonoring to God because of the following things. First, it's dishonoring to God because of this. When we're angry at someone... We're angry at God's greatest treasure. When I'm angry at another human being, what I'm angry at is someone created in the image of God. It talks to us about this in the book of James, of why it says to us to watch the use of our tongue. It says, watch how you speak, because you're speaking to someone, what? Who's created in the image of God. You might think to yourself, well, the person I'm mad at right now, they're a jerk. They're an idiot. They might be a jerk. They might be an idiot. But guess what? They're an idiot created in the image of God. So therefore, when you hold anger in your heart, you're holding anger towards God's greatest treasure, someone created in the image of God. That's why Jesus comes out and says, hey, you can't have any of this in your life because it's dishonoring to God because you have anger towards someone created in the image of God. Secondly, it's dishonoring to God because when we have anger and we're holding someone in contempt, we're putting ourselves in the position of God. It says in Romans chapter 12, it says that God is the one who can avenge. God says it, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, only God is the judge, only God is the executioner who can execute that judgment. And so when you and I are holding someone in our heart with bitterness or anger, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in the place of judge where only God belongs. We dishonor God when there's anger in our lives, when we express that. We dishonor God when we have bitterness towards people because we're holding that towards someone who's created in the image of God. We're putting ourselves in the seat that God occupies, the seat of judge. And the third reason that it's dishonoring to God is because when we have anger and we express that, it's not expressing the heart of God. So we see God's heart through how He interacts with us. And how God interacts with us is He does not treat us according to what we deserve. It tells us in Psalm 103 that we do not get what our iniquities deserve. 
But as far as the east is from the west, God has forgotten our sin. So God does not treat us according to what we deserve. And so to reflect His character, to reflect His heart, how do we treat other people? Even if someone wrongs us, how does God want us to treat them? The same way that He's treated us. To extend mercy and grace. When we don't, we don't properly reflect the character of God, therefore dishonoring God. When we have anger and bitterness in our heart, we're dishonoring God because we're not holding someone up as someone created in the image of God. We're dishonoring God because we're putting ourselves in the seat of judge. We're dishonoring God because we're not reflecting the character of God. And so Jesus says, hey, you got to take this serious. This anger issue, you got to take it seriously. Well, what's this issue that Jesus is ultimately getting at? Look with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus kind of begins to lay out the cycle of humanity. You could say that Jesus kind of lays out the cycle that all of us fall into when someone wrongs us. So look with me at verse 22. Jesus says to you, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable, and whoever says, you fool. So what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of laying down this cycle. He's saying the first thing that happens is this, is you get angry. Someone wrongs you, you get angry. That's going to happen. That's, that's just normal operating procedure. And after you get angry, what's going to happen is this. You're going to begin to insult your brother or your sister. So that anger is going to produce something. It's going to produce language. It's going to produce action that what? Demeans the other person. It insults them. It basically says to the other person, you're an idiot. You're wrong. And then after that, it's going to say, you're going to be saying in your heart continually, you fool. That, that word, you fool, maybe your Bible's got the actual Greek word still in it if you're reading the NIV. That word literally means you moron. You're going to have this in your heart and your mind all the time. You're going to be thinking that this other person is completely idiotic, that they mean nothing, that they are useless. So you're going to be angry at them, you're going to insult them, and then you're going to have this contempt resting in your heart that says about the other person, they're useless. Jesus says, this is the cycle that you're going to fall into. When someone wrongs you, this is usually what happens. We just let it build up and up and up, and then it causes weird things to happen in our lives. Well, when we fall into this cycle of anger and bitterness, what happens is that anger and that bitterness begins to affect everything else. You can't compartmentalize it. Now, I know that I've got some weird eating habits and some weird dietary needs. For the most part, I'm normal. And I kind of set the standard for how and what you eat. Now, one thing that I'm very particular about is my breakfast. Whenever I have pancakes or French toast, I have to have two plates. Because you cannot let that syrup touch anything except the pancakes or the French toast. Have you ever tried to contain syrup on a plate? It's impossible. You're basically moving your fork and spoon around the whole time, trying to keep it pooled up, and then what? You can't enjoy the rest of breakfast. And you can't enjoy the rest of breakfast with syrup on the rest of breakfast. Syrup gets everywhere. The same is exactly true of bitterness and anger. It gets 
everywhere. You can't compartmentalize your anger and be like, okay, I'm only going to be angry with Franklin today. And then Francisca's not going to know that I'm angry at all. It doesn't work that way. Anger and bitterness rots at us. At some point, what does it begin? It begins to affect how I treat Francisca. A couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if this was this, maybe more than a couple of weeks ago, we were at home, just a normal night, I think, and my wife was informing me about something going on at church. Obviously, I know most of the things happening at church. And as she was informing me about something going on at church, a decision, I just exploded. Got very upset. Yelled at her. Got very mad at the moment because it was something that I would, did not like the decision or whatever was being made. It was something that was boiling for a while. But I had just kind of letting it boil in me over and over. Well, what happened was what? She took the brunt of it, and the rest of the family took the brunt of it, when actually, in reality, they had nothing to do with the decision. But it's impossible to compartmentalize any anger you have over here and not, at some point, let it spill over and affect other things. It happens all the time. And then you got to rebuild and go through that whole process of, of putting that foundation back in place. You've experienced this just like me. I know you have where bitterness and anger rots away at you. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a different pathway here. There's a different process to how God wants us to interact. God wants us to interact in our relationships differently because our relationships with one another are not independent of our relationship with God. If you're taking notes this morning, just write this one sentence down because this is non-negotiable. Our relationships with other people are not independent of our relationship with God. I cannot live in relationship with people one way and then expect over here to have this really nice relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. Look with me and I'll show it to you. And here in Matthew chapter 5, 5 verses 23 and 24, look at this with me. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Do you see what he's saying there? He's talking about worship here. Someone coming into the temple. And he's saying, hey, you're coming to the temple and you've got something going on with somebody? Guess what? You can't properly worship. See, so you can't have relational issues going on and expect that it's not going to affect your relationship with God. That says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I see right through that. I see right through that when you come to the temple and offer something, and you've got this going on over here, and you're not doing anything about it. See, the way it's supposed to work is that our relationship with God affects our relationships over here. Our relationships over here don't make us right with God, but our relationships over here are a reflection of who we are with God. The rest of the Bible is crystal clear that we're not made a Christian by how we treat other people. We're made a Christian through faith in Jesus Christ, and we're declared righteous. In other words, we're welcomed into the kingdom of God. And then when we're welcomed into the kingdom of God, God begins to affect our life, our whole life, and that affects how we live in relationship with others. I can't have my relational life and my religious life. God is saying this. You want health? You've got to pursue health in both worlds. Our relationships with others is not independent of our relationship with God. There's this weird tension that's going on here. 
It's all by grace that God saves us, period. Then there is this life that we live that affects our ongoing relationship with God. I showed you that in Matthew 5. Now turn with me to Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Same type of issue going on here. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, famous words. Most of us probably know them. He just finished teaching on prayer. And as he finishes teaching on prayer, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, that, that's just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts in there. Jesus just lays it out there. It's complicated. But one thing is pretty clear, that what? How we treat others and interact with others is having direct effect on our relationship with God. And the other way, our relationship with God is having direct effect on others. The reason that Jesus is so strong on this point is this, is He's already extended forgiveness to you and I. So when you and I don't extend that forgiveness to others, what are we doing? We're basically saying to God, hey God, I can have it, but others can't. Hey God, I want that benefit that you're giving me, but I don't want to give it to others like you've given it to me. Others should benefit from our relationship with God. So Jesus says, hey, there's this dangerous cycle, this cycle that you can fall into. And now he comes to the point of kind of laying out, hey, this is the different pathway. Look with me, if you would, in verse 24. One word he basically says here. So instead of falling into this cycle, he says, leave your gift at the altar and what? Go. What does Jesus want? Jesus wants you and I to go and be reconciled with others, to come to peace with them. And so this morning, I just want to get really practical for a moment and say, how can we live out this way of Jesus? If Jesus actually wants us to go to someone and make peace rather than live in the cycle of anger, how do we do that? This morning, I want to help us remember it by thinking of it this way. Jesus wants us to go and extend a hand. And as we extend a hand, we've got five fingers. So this is what we need to do to live out the way of Jesus. The first is this. We need to begin by praying for great things for the other person that we're having conflict with. I've said this before, and I think sometimes we minimize this whole concept. Well, pastor, you've got to talk about prayer. You've got to mention that prayer is an action step. Of course you do. Well, yeah, of course we do, but guess what? This is a huge one, and I would contend this. This is the greatest opportunity you have. What's the greatest thing that you can do for another person? You can talk to the Creator about them. You can go to the Creator of the universe and say to the Creator, hey, I want this blessing to happen to so-and-so. There's nothing better that you can do for someone than go on behalf of them to the God of this universe. Think of the opportunity that you have. You say, well, the person's not accepting my phone calls. Well, guess what? You can still pray for them. You can still be the greatest blessing in their life. So here's what I want you to do. The next seven days, I want you to pray for great things for one person that you're in conflict with right now. For the next seven days, pray for great things to happen in the person's life who you're in conflict with right now. Step one, pray for them. Step two, you need to go and talk to someone else and confess to them this anger, confess to them this contempt in your life for another person. 
there's a reason that Jesus says and the apostles tell us then in different places, confess your sins to one another. You need to go and confess to a fellow Christian, say to them, hey, this is what's going on in my life, and this is how it's affecting my life. We're terrible at this. We're absolutely horrible at this. At v, the V word, is almost as bad as some of the other words. The V word being vulnerable. God wants us to go to someone and express to them the sin in our life so it gets out in the open and then we can express to that person the different feelings, the different actions that are going on in our life as a result of it. Confess to someone, not the person that you're in conflict, but someone else that you can talk with and work through this with. Pray about it. Go pray for the person that you're in conflict with. Secondly, go and talk to someone else and confess and converse. The third thing is this, and that may be the biggest difficulty of all. Avoid the avoidance tendency. Avoid the avoidance tendency. Franklin doesn't work, like you anymore at work, so what do you do? You avoid Franklin at work. You know when Franklin goes to the water fountain. You know when Franklin goes to the conference room. So what do you do? Intentionally avoid those times. That is in complete opposition to Jesus. A follower of Jesus says, no, I'm going to go to the conference room at that time. I'm going to stay in contact with that individual. This is hard, right? Because if we can avoid them, what? We can try and keep it out of our mind. If we keep it out of our mind, we can try and squelch the anger and the bitterness even further. Jesus does not want us to avoid, but to go and continually interact. Now, I say interact. This doesn't mean when they open the conference room door that you have to be like, hey, Franklin, we need to deal with this issue right now. No, you just need to be in contact with them. Maintain relational interaction. You don't have to deal with the issue every single time that you're together. Pray for them. Talk with another person. Avoid the avoidance tendency. And then fourth, at some point, you've got to open your mouth. You need to speak from your perspective the desire to be at peace with that person. At some point, you need to go to that person and say something like the following. Hey, I've been struggling a lot lately. I know that our relationship is a little bit challenging right now. And from my perspective, I've been hurt from some things that have happened. Notice what I just said there. I didn't say the U word once. The moment you say the U word, guess what? Wall goes right up. And conversation over. Could they have done something wrong? Absolutely. You're not letting them off the hook. All you're doing is you're sharing from your perspective what's happened and how you've been harmed, and then you're finishing by sharing from your perspective, I'm ready for us to, to be at peace the best that we can. Share your perspective, share your desire to be at peace, and share it succinctly. This is not a 30-minute hemming, hawing back and forth of how you're really, this is just sharing succinctly what's happened from your perspective and that you want to be at peace. And then here's a little negotiating technique for you that we can put into place. After you've shared your perspective, guess what? Stop talking. Don't say a word, okay? Not a word. Two minutes goes by and it's still silent. Guess what? Don't say a word. The one who speaks first, what? Loses. Now, this isn't competition sales, but there's something true about that. Don't, don't just let them speak. 
Let them share what first comes back to them. And then just receive it. You need to pray for that person. You need to go talk to another person and confess what's been going on. You need to avoid the avoidance tendency. And then you need to speak to them about your perspective. That's how you fulfill. That's how you reach out your hand. And as you reach out your hand, now comes maybe the hardest step of all. You need to rest in faithfulness to Jesus, not the outcome of your obedience. Guess what? Some of you are going to obey Jesus, and you're going to go and pursue peace. Guess what? There's not going to be peace. You're going to obey Jesus and pursue reconciliation, and there's not going to be a restored relationship because relationship is a two-way street. There's nothing you can do about that. Absolutely nothing. You are not accountable for the other person. You are accountable for what God has told you to do. And so if you follow the steps that Jesus lays out, if you follow the spirit of Jesus Christ, you need to rest and find confidence that, you know what? I've been faithful to Jesus. My confidence doesn't come from whether it's going to go well or go badly, but my confidence comes, I've obeyed my King, Jesus Christ. Jesus would have us reach out a hand rather than go sit in a corner and get into a cycle of anger, bitterness, and contempt. This is real life stuff. Jesus is in the real life business. Jesus isn't just in the heaven business a hundred years from now. Jesus is in the kingdom of heaven business that invades earth today. And the kingdom of heaven invades earth today when the ways of Jesus are implemented. So the question is, are we going to go and extend a hand? And you can go and extend a hand to others when you receive the hand from God that's been extended to you. What God is asking us to do is the very thing that God himself has done. Jesus says, hey, you've got this issue going on with people. The Bible tells us that you and I have an issue with God. It's called sin. And that sin has broken our relationship with God. At one point, you and I were enemies of God. That's the language of the Bible. And what does God do? The Bible tells us that God's angry about that. The Bible tells us that God's not just angry, but He's ready to pour out wrath. And what does God do? Instead of pouring out anger and wrath, He enters into our midst through the person of Jesus Christ. He extends a hand by sending His own Son to come and die for us and rise from the dead. And God extends a hand by saying, trust in my son, Jesus Christ, and let's be in relationship together. And when we receive God's hand extended to us, then we can take and extend our hand to others. Have you experienced the Jesus way in your life where God's hand has been extended to you? Now Jesus asks us to go and extend that same hand to others. Let us pray. Everlasting God, we acknowledge this morning that relationships are tough. We acknowledge that oftentimes we've fallen short, that other people have fallen short. And so we acknowledge that we're in conflict, God. And so we ask now that your Holy Spirit would come and empower us to live out the way of Jesus. 
This morning, God, I pray specifically that you would put people on our minds that we're in the midst of anger with. And God, I pray that you'd burden our hearts this next week for prayer for them. God, I also pray that you would provide an opportunity this next week to interact with them. God, I also pray that you'd give each of us an opportunity to confess and to converse with someone that can help us process through this conflict. God, we praise you and we thank you that you have extended a hand to us. God, we are completely dependent upon you and your grace. Now empower us to go out and extend that grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.